Welcome to Off Good Ireland Podcast. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Greg Johnson of Counter Currents. Greg is a nationalist and a, an author. Please like, share and subscribe. Um, it really, really helps. And you can support us with the Buy Us a Coffee in the link below. Thank you so much, folks. Off Grid Ireland is pleased to welcome Greg Johnson to our podcast this evening. Greg is an American author and journalist. He promotes white nationalism and a white ethno state. Greg is a founder and chief of uh, Countercurrents Publishing. Greg has been involved in nationalism for years and believes in white nationalism, not white supremacy. Greg's intellectual knowledge is vast and is one of the reasons I've asked him on tonight is to give insight into his journey so far. Welcome to Offcourt Ireland, Greg. For having me on, it's a pleasure. We're delighted to have you. Can you give us um, a bit of a background just for those who, who maybe not mightn't be uh, familiar with your work? Well, I have a very, very moderate, sensible position, I think. I believe that in the case of Ireland, Ireland is the homeland of the Irish people. I think that it's perfectly reasonable for Irish people to be concerned that in recent years, the, the trends have been that there are fewer and fewer Irish people in Ireland, and that if these trends continue for decades and decades more, there might be virtually no Irish people in Ireland, and that at a certain point, the native Irish people will lose control of their destiny, lose control of their, their, their home. They will, they will have no home. They will have no home. They will have no homeland. And eventually they might just uh, cease to exist. They'll just be blended away into some kind of uh, rootless global um, worker consumer society, which some people envision as utopia and sounds like hell on earth to me. So I think that it's perfectly reasonable and rational for people in Ireland to demand that instead of there being fewer Irish in Ireland, next year and the year after and the year after that, that these trends be turned around, that next year Ireland become more Irish and the year after that Ireland becomes still more Irish and so on, because that's what it is to have a homeland. It's, it's a place where people of a particular ethnicity who have, are connected with that to that land since time immemorial uh, feel at home and can have a way of life uh, perpetuate their kind, perpetuate their, their genes, perpetuate their culture on into the future. And I stand against globalism and quasi-globalist institutions like the European Union because they oppose nationalism. Healthy ethnic nationalism is what I stand for. So I am happy to speak to people in Ireland because I understand that there is a, a growing resistance to globalization there a growing resistance to uh, the dispossession of the Irish people, the redefinition of being Irish uh, to being you know, anybody who has an Irish passport, things like that. So I just want to give you whatever encouragement I can possibly give, and I want to learn as much as possible about what you're thinking and what you're doing um, and, and encourage you. Yeah, no, thanks a million. And yeah, that's... I I probably agree with every everything that you just said there a hundred percent. Here in I think the West and Ireland specifically, where um, we get ballyraggled a lot, or you know, 
about not being accepting of minorities and um, this type of uh, argument. But when in fact we, we're actually a minority on the planet ourselves, which is kind of, I think that's the trick they're pulling, is it? That, you know, that we're, um, that we're actually a minority ourselves. Yeah, well, white people are a global minority and the Irish are a tiny, tiny global minority. And yet, if globalization has full sway and your borders are open, there's nothing to protect Ireland from being simply overrun, uh, flooded with people from the second and third worlds. And that will be the end of Ireland. And therefore, if Ireland is to exist, it needs borders. And that's true of any other nation. And every, every European country and every European colonial society around the world is being told that they need to be accepting of minorities, which means basically that they need to open their doors to the global majority and allow themselves to lose control of their homelands, lose control of their culture, their education, their political system, uh, and their destiny, ultimately uh, lose control of their ability to perpetuate their kind into the future. That's wrong. Uh, it's crazy, actually. And when you put it in very simple terms, uh, most people immediately reject it, which is why I think uh, there's so much censorship that's directed in our, our way and so much uh, uh, just so many attempts to basically uh, inoculate people from even listening to us, make, make people resist listening to us, uh, stigmatize us, stigmatize our views because they're so darn reasonable. And uh, uh, if you simply say that uh, as an Irish nationalist, you want Ireland to be more Irish next year than it is this year, uh, that is a very reasonable position. Uh, if one were to say that one's worried about the fate of a particular breed of fish or a particular bird in Ireland, and you were to go to politicians in Ireland and say, the, the Irish snail darter, if there is such a thing, is on the road to extinction. What are you going to do about it? None of them would dare say they don't care. They might not care. They might pretend that they care, but they will actually pretend that they care about that. But if you were to say the Irish people are on the road to extinction, the demographic trends are ominous, uh, they will say, uh, get this hater out of the room. Uh, what, do you want to go, go mad and kill people? Things like that. Uh, it, it's, it's an absurd position that they are defending. Uh, and it's a perfectly reasonable position that we're advocating. And so, again, censorship is, is really their first and last resort. However, I think that as more people come to recognize the fundamental realism uh, and reasonableness and moralness of the idea that every people deserves a historic homeland of their own, uh, that th this censorship is going to start fading away. They simply won't be able to uh, contain nationalism. And in, a, in the case of a country like Ireland, they can't even make the excuse that the Irish uh, went out and colonized other peoples. And so it's your just desserts, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, just Greg on that, because I have some questions for you on the Irish thing. And actually what you're saying there, uh, that we're going to touch on that in a couple of minutes. Um, what, what's your kind of take on, on your stance on what's happening in Ireland? Are you, are you I suppose you're happy as we are to see the, the protests? 
um, uh, rising up across the country. And also there's a bit of an upsurge from parents pushing back on the the LGBT agenda in the schools. What's your feeling on that? Sorry, Greg, are you there? muted myself. <laughs> I think any pushback against the establishment is good. I, I think that anything that keeps them off balance and on the defense is good. I think, though, that it's most important to focus uh, one's energy and uh, messaging on the simple message that Ireland is the homeland of the Irish people. Unrestricted immigration uh, is going to cause the Irish people to lose control of their homeland, first politically, because, of course, you've got one man, one vote. And also, there are all kinds of privileges that are being given to immigrants uh, that the, the natives don't have. So you're going to lose control politically and culturally first, but eventually, you'll simply be outbred in your own homelands. And this has happened in the past. Conquering peoples have colonized. Well, it's happened in your past, hasn't it? Uh, you've been conquered and you've been colonized in the past, and the Irish fought for hundreds of years to regain control of their homeland, and it's really sad that uh, it's, it's being thrown away so quickly. And so I think if you focus on that message, Ireland is the homeland of the Irish people, other peoples around the world have a right to homelands of their own, we have to control our borders to maintain uh, Ireland as an Irish homeland, and we want policies that will immediately start enhancing the position of the native Irish in Ireland immediately. Let's start that this year and we'll move in that direction. I think that's the best messaging of, of all because that really strikes at the uh, demographic replacement threat that, that you're facing and that all white peoples are facing really in Europe. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, like keeping the message simple because they do like what you touched on there a while ago that they, they use like these dog whistles and that they want to put people, you know, call them a far right or a fascist or a Nazi or whatever, else, which they're not. They're just concerned citizens. Um, so I think keeping it on point, like what you said there, that everyone should be entitled to, ha to have their homeland kept. I think that's that's a really important message. Um, the, is there an economic solution or, or a system that would work in Ireland without the need for flooding the country with migrants? I suppose the question touches on, I, it's an economic argument, isn't it, that we're not replacing ourselves, that uh, our, birth, our birth rates are below replacement level um, and that we need these migrants to pay the pensions. Is that, is that kind of the, the mainstream narrative, is it? Or, or we, go, we can go into conspiracy. That's a very widespread narrative. I think that uh, it's uh, an absurd narrative because the very people, often the very same people who are pushing that narrative, also, if you read other things that they've written, find one of these people and Google them and see if they have written articles about how the child-free life is the, is the best kind of life. And you look at it and there's a picture of red-headed Irish people with no children in it, right? Uh, the very same institutions that are saying that the solution to low birth rates is immigration are in causing low birth rates. They're promoting uh, low birth rates uh, by promoting lifestyles that are inconsistent with having uh, replacement level uh, population growth. That, I think, has to be dealt with. Uh, these are policies. It's not some mysterious cosmic plague, right? Uh, 
that has caused birth rates in modern industrial societies in Europe and also in the Far East to, to fall below replacement. Uh, it's based on policies. It's based on cultural values. It's based on messaging in the media, uh, incentives that are set in place. Those incentives can be changed. And if you want a solution to low uh, fertility in Ireland, you can simply raise Irish fertility. That is something that is completely responsive to incentives. Okay. People uh, follow incentives. Incentives can be put in place to raise Irish fertility. But another thing that has to be uh, dealt with squarely is why do we have this Ponzi scheme model of pensions where you have to have uh, a constant economic growth and constant population growth to maintain pensioners uh, in their old age. Where did this model come from? It, it obviously wasn't the way that things were throughout most of history. And do you have to have this model? Another factor here is this. Why in the world, if governments can create money out of nothing, that they feel the need to tax people to pay for pensions? or to borrow money from banks and private citizens to pay for pensions. If they can create money out of nothing, why is there the need for new people to come and pay into the pension system uh, at all? This attitude is a relic of a time when money consisted of scarce bits of precious metal. And if you didn't have it, you had to tax people for it or you had to borrow to get it. But money doesn't work that way anymore. Money is fiat currency, and fiat currency means, it literally means let there be money and poof, you, they can bring it into existence. So why don't they, why don't they bring it into existence that way that rather than uh, have this idea that we have to have uh, ever growing populations and now foreigners coming in to tax them to pay for pensioners. Uh, the whole system needs to be reformed and it can be reformed. Uh, it, it's just a matter of will. And the people who say that, oh, we've got to have these people to pay into our pensions, they're, they're very unimaginative and they're counting on their listeners being very unimaginative. Uh, but there, there are ways that we can um, avoid this situation. And the other thing is, isn't it sort of insulting uh, to young people that they're basically being regarded as milk cows for the pension system. Uh, and shouldn't it be upsetting to foreigners coming in that that's how they're being looked at as basically contributing to the pensions of, of, of elderly people? So I, I'm very skeptical of those arguments. Uh, it, it's not necessary that there be low fertility. It's being caused by policy decisions and it can be turned around with different policy decisions, different cultural messaging, different incentives. And therefore that argument for bringing in replacement uh, populations just falls dead. Yeah, that's, um, I think you've kind of, you've pulled it asunder. It doesn't make any sense to me uh, either, this whole idea that um, we can't pay the pensions. And exactly like you said, with the fiat uh, currency system, they could easily print the, the money. And at the same time, 
But uh, at the other side of it as well, it's uh, like a lot of it's it's this liberalism. Do you not think? You know what I mean? The destruction of the family unit, and then not not maybe it wasn't all done on purpose. Like simple things like the washing machine, contraception, uh, sanitary towels. I know the women will think I'm picking on them now, but I'm not picking on them. But and then our lifestyles have been encouraged maybe through the media and Hollywood. And this is what has led to the place. And I was saying last week, we're like, as, as a race or, a, you know, an ethnicity that's conquered the world, built the best monuments, had the best discoveries. Now we're, we're like utter failures. We can't even reproduce our own race. The, the most basic tribe in Africa that, you know, never developed from 10,000 years ago, they, they, can, they can procreate enough to sustain themselves. But I've been saying that a lot lately. Yeah, that, that's that's well put. How is it that white people uh, who have accomplished so much are now like pandas in a zoo and can barely reproduce themselves? Uh, I, I, they, they need aid to reproduce themselves. Something is afoot. And what's happened here is that we haven't changed our genes. We've changed our values and we've changed our political structure. We've changed the incentives. We've changed our lifestyles. This is all very recent. And these things can be undone. These can be, these things can be worked around. Uh, we just need to put better incentives in place, and that problem is, is through. But the other thing is, wouldn't it be nice? To, isn't it also ironic that leftists, rank leftists, you know, the people who believe in the the most alarmist climate change propaganda, will turn on a dime and say we need these migrants in ever-growing numbers to pay for the welfare system. The same people will say both things. And you have to ask them, what, what about sustainability? Wait a second here. What about sustainability? Isn't there a kind of steady state system uh, that we could create that doesn't require constant growth? Aren't you always complaining about constant growth? Why do we accept the idea that we need constant population growth? Even if you simply had it within your own people, say Ireland closed its borders, say that all the recent immigrants from the past 30 years repatriated themselves over time and Ireland became, I don't know, 96% Irish. Uh, it's a real question as to whether or not it would be desirable for there to be constant comp population growth in Ireland. How many Irish? is enough. Uh, could do, Does your population have to double every few generations? I, I wouldn't say so. And if you believe uh, that you are committed to that kind of constant growth, that's going to be problematic. You're going to have a more crowded society. Uh, you're that's going to have uh, economic that problems, ecological problems too. Greg, that ties into the next question I wanted to ask you because the whole thing Obviously, in the U.S., they can kind of point back to the, the history of slavery and they try and, you know, create guilt, uh, you know, white guilt or whatever they call it. Now, they, they try that here in Ireland. And the shtick is that the Irish emigrated everywhere. So we should allow, you know, mass unvetted immigration into the country because the Irish apparently went everywhere. And um, what was the other one to have another the other thing? Um, you know, well, that's pretty much it, that, that we have some kind of guilt. Uh, and that we owe the world something because the Irish went to America and they went to the UK. What's your what's your thoughts on that one? Your ancestors obviously didn't go to the UK or America. The people who live in Ireland are the ones who didn't emigrate. 
So why are they alleged to bear some historical burden because of the ones who did emigrate? That doesn't make any sense just on the face of it. And so I think that if you want to say that some Irish need to bear some kind of historical burden for emigration, it should go to the Irish diaspora rather than the Irish homeland, right? But the very idea is silly. The Irish had to emigrate because they were poor. Some of them were taken away basically as slaves. There were many reasons for Irish emigration, and all of them had to do with wrongs that were committed against the Irish people, sometimes by other Irish people. You had a system, and this was the case in the UK. It was the case in continental Europe, where many people were pressured by poverty and oppression to flee to the New World and other colonies. Many people were taken by force as little more than slaves. And the fact that these things happened is a sign that you had a badly organized society in the past. And if there's similar pressures for mass emigration in Africa and so forth, that's also a sign of badly constructed societies. And shouldn't you want to deal with the root cause of emigration, namely social injustice, political injustice, oppression, and things like that, rather than just allow these oppressive systems to basically send away malcontents? Because one of the reasons these people were exported is so they couldn't create revolutions and overthrow the system that was causing the seething necessity of emigration in the first place. Sometimes they were forced out. Other times they left of their own free will because they were poor or oppressed. But with every emigrant coming from an unjust society, that just perpetuates an unjust system. So why in the world? Again, and this is an argument that leftists give. Leftists are saying we should allow unrestricted immigration from Africa. Well, really? Why wouldn't we want to get to the root causes of emigration, namely social injustice and poverty, and solve it where the problems are? That's the way I would say we should do it. Why make past historical injustices an argument for new injustices? That's basically my response to that kind of argument. Look, sure, Greg, this is low-level stuff that these leftists throw at us. I just wanted to get your thoughts on it because it is absolutely ridiculous and there's nothing behind it. My next question could be if they're trying to relate it to the Irish question and what's going on here now. Were the Irish put up in four-star hotels and paid for by the taxpayer in the United States when they arrived in New York? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Were they given free money? Were they put up in hotels or were they literally pulling themselves up from their bootstraps? I think that's the difference. Absolutely. Irish immigrants were not particularly welcome here. They certainly weren't privileged. They certainly weren't a privileged caste. And that's definitely the way third world immigration is being treated in Ireland today. And one of the effects of treating immigrants as a 
privileged caste is that it creates, for, creates more immigration. Uh, in America in the 19th century, one of the great waves of Im immigration came, many of those people didn't make it in America and turned around and went home. Uh, there were a lot of people who migrated, uh, remigrated back to their homelands because they didn't make it in America. Today, uh, these people are given uh, privileges and they have a cushy lifestyle uh, guaranteed them so that they're always, almost always better off even being welfare scroungers in America than going back to Gabon or uh, Belize or wherever they came from. So yeah, uh, the, the incentives are, are very, very different now. Uh, and the, the incentives are, are put in place, I think, out of fundamentally mischievous motives. There's something uh, grotesque about uh, putting uh, foreigners up in luxury uh, while sometimes uh, they're, they're homeless people of, of natives, native Irish stock who are going wanting. Uh, who thinks that's a good idea? Who thinks that's justice? The only people who think that's just are people who hate the Irish. And you have to just go there. You have to say, these are the kinds of policies that we would expect from people who hate the Irish. Why in the world would anybody want the people of Ireland to be uh, committed to a situation, forced to accept a situation where in each year, there are fewer and fewer of them with less and less power, less and less rights, uh, less and less control over their, over their destiny. The only people who would impose policies like that are up to no good. And you don't have to gently ask them, why do you dislike us? Or, or do you dislike us? Uh, you just have to say, why do you dislike us? It's, it's evident that these are policies that are being crafted by people who have a malicious intent towards the native Irish people. Yeah, I, I've come to that conclusion myself, and um, I know a lot of people have conspiracies and all this kind of type of stuff. But for me, I think it's to, it's to dilute the native population, and I think it could be purely economic reasons. Um, say, for example, the Irish are more likely to own their own farm or own their own house. Uh, probably more likely to have their own car, you know, to have skin in the game, to have properties, businesses. So if, you, if you've if you put this, like, lighthouse out to the world, all the poor people of the world, like, come here, we're going to put you up in a hotel, we're going to give you a basic income or social welfare, we're going to um, house you within a, as fast a time frame as possible. Like, they're going to come. when you, when you you Like, we're advertising for these people to come here. You can't actually even blame the people. It's our, it's our, it's our government that, like, rightly, what you said, they hate us. And um, do you think that that could be a part to do with it? That, that they're t they want to tip the balance of power away from the native population who, who will have assets, who will have skin in the game, and then usher in some kind of communist utopia or something. Is that where this is all going, do you think? Or what's your opinion on that? I, I don't... I think that's exactly right. Uh, I don't think it's primarily an economic argument. Ireland could be a very, very prosperous society, a very clean, prosperous, wholesome society without immigration at all. Uh, there are some people, yes, who, who do benefit from immigration. Uh, people uh, who are in industries where, for instance, they're building, they're building new houses for new immigrants, right? For a growing population, they obviously benefit from that. 
there are people in industries where uh, if there are lots of new unskilled workers coming in, that the prices of labor go down. And I, I think that these are constituencies that can be brought on board with race replacement immigration uh, and support race replacement immigration. But I don't think they're the driving force here. Uh, the driving force of this is some kind of leftist utopian vision of a world without borders and a world without peoples. Uh, and they look upon uh, the native Irish who are attached to their identity and their past as, as cringe inducing freaks, embarrassing patriotic freaks who need to be basically subdued uh, by uh, diluting their, their political power, diluting their presence in Ireland, diluting their culture, uh, mixing their culture up with foreign elements. Uh, why to subjugate them? Uh, because uh, they stand in the way of a single global homogeneous world. And that's really the utopian end state that I think a lot of leftists envision. I don't think uh, they'll ever get there. And uh, what's going to happen is it's going to be a very grim and uh, dystopian world ruled over by a, a small clique of, uh, of manipulators, uh, many of them fantastically rich, uh, ridiculously decadent, uh, yet they think, them, think of themselves as vanguards of, of progressive values. And uh, uh, we have to basically cancel their utopia. <laughs> uh, we have to say, no, we don't, we don't uh, want to jump into their globalist melting pot uh, and uh, become just deracinated subjects of, of their, their utopian games, their plans. Without a doubt, we have to resist at every level, and that's just to roll into the next question. How do you feel about localism? Can localism achieve a change in Ireland as compared to a national movement, or how do you feel around that? Well, I think organizing locally is fine, but I, I like to nick a, a phrase from the globalists. Uh, think, you know, organize locally, but think nationally. Uh, because ultimately what you need is to contest power at the level of the nation state. Because the nation state has sovereignty. Uh, the, the Irish state has sovereignty. It is considered uh, an equal among other sovereign nations in the comedy of sovereign nations in the world. Uh, the nation state can say no to globalist bodies. Uh, and the nation state can also cancel out anything you want to do on more local localized jurisdictions. So it's fine to organize locally, but it's never going to be enough because what you have to ultimately gain is power over the nation state because that is the sovereign entity that can say no to the globalists and no to the to your efforts on the uh, on the local level as well. So start locally, but build up because ultimately the prize, the, the, the absolutely indispensable prize is power over nation states. That's what you've got to go for eventually. Yeah, and it, it, well, for the Irish situation, it's going to be a hard slog because we've got entrenched parties that are there since, since um, the independence. And um, 
they're kind of had it's kind of pretty similar to the US. They kind of had a you know monopoly or the you know the in tandem passing the ball back and forth between them. And then of course you've got Sinn Fein now coming up behind. They were you know they would have had the the military wing at the IRA and all that back in the day, and they've renounced that and put it to one side. Um, and they're kind of I think they're the biggest party in the country now, but they've never actually held the reins of power down south. And um, unfortunately, they're Marxist, they're uh, pro-Palestinian, they're pro-LGBT, they're, um, they're, they're not nationalists. Um, unfortunately, they're globalists. So the unfortunate part of the matter is, like, obviously, we're a minority here. We're trying to get the message out. I think the messaging that you said, like keeping it basic that, you know, everyone should be entitled to their own homeland and we should never be a minority. Keeping it simple for people is, is a good tactic. But um, the national yeah. politics, it's going to be, you know, unless I don't know what could come out of the blue. Maybe there's a black swan or something that will shake the whole thing up. Maybe this banking thing that's going on now might, you know, but we're, we're, we're not there yet. But I think, it, I, I don't know, I, I can see the, the, the seed has been watered or like it, there's, so, there's a seeds are being planted now. But it's just, I suppose we want instant gratification, but these things take time. They absolutely do. You have to be patient because nationalist activists are very, very important people. And it's absolutely tragic when they burn themselves out because they get impatient. Uh, it, it's a long battle. It, was, it took decades for the left to wrestle policy and culture around to the situation that we're in today. And it will take decades for us to wrestle power away from them. We do have time, we can turn this around. The situation in Ireland and other countries in Europe is far less dire than the situation is, for instance, in the United States. And even there, I have some hope for the long term. But I think you have uh, grounds for hope. Uh, the, the, the thing that I love about people in Europe is they're far more ethnocentric than Americans are. They're far more concerned about this. They, they squawk far more easily and, and, uh, and early <laughs> than Americans do about ethnic displacement. And that's, that's a positive sign. Uh, so I think if you can hold on to your identity, hold on to your, the sense of this is right, and recognize that it took a long time for the, the ship of state to be turned in the wrong direction, it takes a long time to steer ships. It takes a long time to turn them. You can't just turn them on a dime. Uh, it's going to take a while to turn it in the right direction. Uh, and you've got to be realistic about that and pace yourself so you don't burn out. Uh, you've got to be stoical about it. You have to realize there's some things you can control and other things you can't. And you can't sweat the things that you can't control. And you need to focus on the things that you can. Changing consciousness uh, person by person, uh, block by block, town by town is, is the way to begin. Uh, because eventually, uh, you know, if uh, enough people say, we don't believe in this system, it's not legitimate, uh, it doesn't matter if you've got a small group of political parties and connected insiders passing the, you know, passing the, 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 the premiership back and forth between them, things like that, the way we have in the United States, the way it is in the UK and so forth. If nobody believes that, anymore. If, if it has no legitimacy anymore, uh, it's going to crumble. It'll crumble like communism crumbled. It'll get hollower and hollower 
until finally the facade just collapsed because it collapses because there's no heart to it anymore. Nobody has their heart in it anymore. That's the way you have to work. And the, the trouble is, is that um, politics lags behind culture. Politics lags behind historical changes in people's consciousness. And when communism fell apart in 1989, all the smart people were taken by surprise. They were taken by surprise because on the, they were looking at the surfaces and on the surface, it looked stable. The system of repression was awe-inspiring and powerful, uh, but it crumbled away very, very rapidly because it was hollow on the inside and the experts were taken by surprise. So think, think in those terms, think of hollowing out the current system Think in terms of getting people to see through the lies, see through the charades, see through the cynicism of, of the, uh, the establishment. And eventually, when enough people feel that way, uh, it doesn't matter that they can print all the money they want, that they can send the police and the army and things like that to get you. Uh, eventually, even those people will stop obeying them. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous speech by Nikolai Ceausescu, it was his last speech, <laughs> where he was giving a speech and people were booing him. And he was shocked. He was utterly shocked that people were booing him. And, uh, and then he started uh, trying to uh, basically make a deal with the crowd. He started offering them things, which was just a sign of weakness. Uh, he was dead within 24 hours of that speech. Uh, the whole the whole regime uh, unraveled very very quickly, and and so can it happen in Ireland and in the UK and Sweden and France and and elsewhere? Uh, you just have to keep working at it, and you have to know you have to have faith that this is effective, even though you might not see on the surface of the political system any changes until it you know the, the, all the scenery comes crashing down and and the world's taken by surprise. Yeah, that that's really good stuff, um, and you've made us made me think about that again because I, I remember reading somewhere that said that the, these regimes are you know they look their strongest before they fail. So they're like in Ireland here, for example, they're bringing in hate speech laws. They're trying to police our speech. Um, you know they want to clamp down on what we're saying, but obviously, like for us, we could get disenfranchised and disheartened, and oh, you know the big scary government. When actually this is a sign of weakness, they're afraid that they're they're losing control of the the narrative, um, and it, it kind of tied into what you just said there from what I had read before that these regimes they look like a monster before they actually just fold in on top of themselves. So I think hopefully we could be we could be could be going that direction. Yeah, it's a sign of weakness and a sign of lack of uh, of control that they they have to censor people. It, it's possible for a small establishment to maintain control over a pluralistic society with freedom of speech in place because they are basically capable of making sure that the entire political spectrum, no matter how different they are on certain inessential points, are all on the same page about things that are essential to the establishment. And you can have uh, ferocious partisan battles and uh, angry speech and the, the, all the trappings of, of pluralism and freedom and democracy and still nothing changes uh, because 
again, they've staked out all the positions on the political spectrum and they've made them friendly to the political establishment. Well, as soon as they sense that there are outsiders who don't agree with the establishment agenda that are being heard, they panic, right? They don't own those people. And that's why they have to shut them down. Uh, the reason why they allow free, quote unquote, free debate and pluralism uh, is because it, it doesn't really change anything and there's nothing really uh, essential at stake for the establishment. As soon as any essential issues are broached and as soon as any of their essential uh, interests are threatened, then they get censorious. They're, they're reacting and they're afraid and they should be afraid uh, because for, for decades, they basically had us all hornswoggled and now their power is slipping. Uh, I think that for all the disappointments that came from Donald Trump's presidency, uh, the, the, the greatest thing he did really was on the day he announced that he was running for president because he basically junked a gentleman's agreement that the Democrats and the Republicans had to never compete with one another on the desirability of economic globalization and immigration. They would compete on abortion and school prayer and a whole number of other issues, economic issues, feminism, et cetera, et cetera, but they weren't going to compete on globalization and immigration. Those were sacrosanct. And Trump questioned that. He junked that. And he's never been forgiven for that because as soon as we had a politician who was openly talking about uh, why these are bad things for the Native American population, uh, people couldn't resist it. They wanted more of that and they still want that. And the establishment is panicking because they can't really get that idea contained. Uh, and so if you have one politician and, and, the, and the way that establishments fail is if they have some, how about how to put it, traitors to their class. Trump, Trump was a traitor to his class. He was part of the establishment, but he betrayed them on something essential to globalization, something essential to their identity and their agenda. And there are many people in establishments who are uh, elites, members of the elite who are ready, elite who are ready to go rogue uh, some of them are idealistic, some of them are sociopathic, <laughs> some of them are just trying to compete with others and, and they're going to, uh, they'll, they'll break those gentlemen's agreements, especially uh, once the way has been shown uh, by, by braver people. And so I think that there is some hope that there will be rogue members of the political establishment there. One of the ways that they'll go rogue though is because they sense that the people are against the, the, the system and they, uh, they, they, want to, uh, they want to start pandering to the Irish people again <laughs> for a change, right? So uh, just keep up the pressure, keep up the, uh, the attempts to change people's consciousness. And even though you've got a pretty tight and cozy political establishment, just like we had in the United States before Trump, there might be a rogue member of that establishment and it only takes one uh, to, to get a lot of change underway. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that. And here in Ireland, especially, 
I've seen the reaction of the media and the government with, say, the protests and the pushback against the, the mass un, unvetted migrants that they've, they've sw- swollen the country with in the last year, specifically. Um, the government's reaction is very heavy-handed. It's lashing out, and some like different guys here, pundits and whatever, they, they'd mock them. Like They're trying to say that 20 social media accounts are all are causing all the ills in Ireland. So they're worried about 20 people's, like, because we can see this from the mainstream news articles that they're writing. You know, far-right influencers are saying this, far-right influencers saying that, calling fascists, calling all horrible names, Nazi, all this type of extremist, this, that, and the other. Now, at the same time, I, I kind of see the, the movement that's beginning to grow. I know a lot of the people that they're referencing in those articles. And in my mind, you could be like, wow, like, there's not a lot of us. You know, like, all's lost, we're never going to get changed. You could go there. But when you look at how the panic, the panic of the media, the panic, which, which is government, it's state-run media. They're not, they're not independent media. They're all propped up by government uh, money for advertising, the legacy media. And their reaction to what's happening here in Ireland emboldens me, and it should embolden everybody. It's that we have more power than we realise. And that's, I think, really important that, I, that I've noticed here anyway in Ireland and for anyone listening. We definitely have way more power than we realize. I, I think that's true. Another thing that's going on, though, is they're scapegoating a few media voices for uh, a change in consciousness that is being caused by their policies. The, the number one driver of nationalism and populism in every white country is not a few silver-tongued media influencers like you or me, as much as we would like to pat ourselves on the back. The the main force that's driving people towards nationalism and populism are the negative consequences of open borders and globalization, and also the the lies and the cover-ups and the sanctimony and the censorship that the establishments resort to to, to deal with the, the ne- these negative consequences. That's the number one driving factor in the rise of populism and nationalism. I look at myself and other people like me more as a finishing school. We're not the, the, the people who get people's eyes opened first. You know, they, their eyes are opened by their children being beaten up. <laughs> their eyes are opened by uh, race mixing uh, in advertisements. Their eyes are opened up by no-go zones in their cities and so forth. And then they start searching out for explanations and they find people like you and me. So this is extremely encouraging because what it means is that for everybody who's listening to this, there are a thousand or three or five or 10,000 people who are noticing the same things thinking the same things, but they haven't found their way to us yet. And they are being driven to us by the establishment's policies. And the establishment is not letting up on those policies. They are doubling down. And even if they manage to take every one of us off the internet, they shut us down, they censor us, they gag us, they're not going to change that rising tide of national populist consciousness because they're the cause of it, not us. They're trying to scapegoat us 
for the the problems that their that their program is facing. But we are not the uh, we're not the we're not the <laughs> we're not the criminals here, right? We're we're just uh, reacting to the same thing that vast swaths of the public are reacting to as well. They're the ones driving this. They're the ones in control, and if they took their foot off the, the accelerator, this would slow down, but they can't do that. They have, they're, they're, the pedal is to the metal and they have no brakes. And this is playing into our hands. You don't know, Greg, I, I agree with everything that you just said there. And a part of it resonated with me as well, because a lot of people say they came in over the last three years with what happened with the egregious lockdowns and the you know loss of bodily autonomy and the push and the crazy shit that went on over the pandemic basically and i at the beginning when i first came on telegram i came on over those issues more so than i wasn't i wouldn't have, i wouldn't have called myself a nationalist definitely wouldn't have called myself an ethno-nationalist back then this was three years ago um and what's after happening is with all of this it's like the biggest education ever because you're like, the enemy is globalism, it's, you know, authoritarianism. In my mind, then, the, the opposite to that is nationalism. But when I first come on to Telegram, I used to, I, I was probably like the way um, a lot of people are that, that aren't exposed to these ideas, because I was programmed by the system. So when people would say, you know, the white race, I used to nearly cringe a little bit. I'm thinking, you know, that sounds, I like, I'm, I was where, like, back then, I was, where a lot of people are probably now, so not a lot of, you know, when they first hear when people say, well, it's, when so why do you have to say white? Do you know what I mean? Or, um, it's, I'm trying to put it into words or whatever else, but I've completely flipped in my whole way of thinking, like, because it's, it's so obvious now what's going on. And I think there's an awful lot of people that are in the same mindset. And what I was trying to say yeah. is basically, this, this whole COVID thing has, started off a great awakening and there's an awful lot of people i presume feeling the way i've i felt we kind of came out f swinging against the establishment over this lockdowns all this type of stuff and we're looking for solutions and i think a, a lot of these people are going to be going the way i internationalism i would class myself maybe as a christian nationalist i but i don't like to put myself into a box but uh, i am a christian and i'm a nationalist <laughs> so well, you're, you're, I would just say you're an Irish nationalist and part of that identity is definitely Christianity. That's definitely a huge part of Ireland's history and identity. Um, so uh, why say white? Well, you don't even have to necessarily, you can simply say Irish, but then what people will do is they say, well, but look at these new Irishmen these new Irishmen from Central Africa, they have Irish passports like you. And then you have to say, well, look, I don't mean Irish passport holders. There are, you know, Iri the, the Irish are a white European people. And you can try and transmute uh, people of other races into the Ir into, Ir Ir into Irish people, uh, but it doesn't stick. It can't really be done. It's just a fiction. Now, other white people can come to Ireland and immigrate uh, and assimilate over time. Uh, and the way I, I want to uh, talk about race, really, is race is sort of like the, the widest category uh, of assimilable immigrants, right? Uh, so you can say, yeah, well, we can have a few uh, 
white immigrants who, if they really want to come to Ireland and be part of the Irish people, uh, maybe their children will be if they intermarry and they uh, adopt the folk ways of Ireland and things like that. Uh, but then, then you do have to start talking about race. And so it does creep in. Uh, it's forced upon you, though, by the people who want to say anybody can be Irish, Irish even Africans, even Middle Easterners, even Far Easterners, anybody can be Irish. Uh, they just have to have a passport uh, and, and uh, maybe swear some kind of oath, uh, have the right papers filed. Uh, that's, that's why race becomes uh, relevant. Yeah, no, and I, I've learned that myself. You're 100% correct. Like every day of the week we've got on the Irish newspapers, it's like Dundalk man or Dublin man or whatever town, Mullingar man. And then when you read into the article a bit further, you know, the guy is, he's an Arab or he's from Africa or whatever else. And, and that's how it's framed. So they won't even give a photo fit ID a criminal threat anymore because it's to, like you said, the, just because you have an Irish passport doesn't make you Irish. And like if you if you were um, born in Japan and you, and your your two Irish parents were, you know, you're not a Japanese. Like it's, <laughs> it's right. It is right. nonsense. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Well, are you optimistic? Are you optimistic about the protests? Uh, do you think that uh, you have good leaders and people are putting uh, putting together good organizations who can sustain this? over the long haul and and really produce political change well i'm hoping i'm hoping that like we've got the irish freedom party we've got the national party um and we've got ireland first which derek Bly is uh, in the process of setting up at the moment i'm very optimistic like it's you have to be optimistic you could go look there's loads of things to be pessimistic about the banks are failing there's this there's that there's, you know what i mean but if you to be optimistic, to look at, there's a huge groundswell of people that are waking up. They're waking up around the climate issue. They're waking up around the LGBT thing being pushed into the schools. And they're waking up with the mass unvetted migrant invasion, the plantation that's going on. Now, it is only small at the moment, but at the same time, we're only a small country. And the likes of uh, Philip Dwyer, he's a very good live, live streamer there, and he goes out and highlights these issues. Um, at the peak of his uh, online, say, traction over the last couple of months, he was getting like two and a half thousand, two thousand people on live when he was live, pulling 50,000 views after a stream, which is massive. Like we're talking, our country has like five million people, and you know it was unheard of. You're talking about a guy who was going around and couldn't get any views. Um, so I'm not. I don't want to be like too optimistic, but there's a huge amount to be optimistic about. And in my mind, I think. It will take an economic recession or something. I think there's just a little, people are so pissed off and it's just, you know, the bread and circuses are very powerful and the spell binding with the Netflix and the, you know, I think with a financial crisis like a 2008 style crisis here again, it's going to be like what you said, the, the, the hollow regime will fold in on top of itself. That's my opinion. That's what I, I would hope for. Um, like the COVID thing is very important to me as well, what they did there with the, the lies, the nonsense, our, our excess debts are through the roof here. They're over 20% uh, nationally. They're 40% upwards in different regions. Um, the lockdowns, you know, the, the medazolam, the way they treat the elderly. Uh, that's, that's big. I have a big problem with all of that stuff. But I think all of it's going to come together to break the back of this monstrous regime eventually. But I would hope. 
I agree. You know, they can handle one catastrophe at a time, uh, but they can't handle two or three or four at a time. Uh, and so when something is destabilizing them, that's a time to pile on, uh, to intensify uh, protest, because uh, they are going to reach a point where they can't contain it. And once they can't contain it, then things can, it's, it's like uh, when containment fails in a nuclear power plant, uh, suddenly there's a chain reaction, right? Uh, things can get uh, very big, very fast. Uh, so yeah, uh, once they are on the ropes in one area, it's definitely good to pile on. Now the uh, COVID thing was a catastrophe uh, economically and socially, uh, and also politically, it was a political catastrophe. It was a catastrophe for the entire political establishment because it really discredited the political establishment in the, in, the, in, in the eyes of a lot of people. There's no question about it. And the economic cons consequences of COVID policies, zero COVID policies, lockdowns, you know, paying people not to work, uh, just thinking that you could blow a whistle and, and society would freeze for two years uh, and you could just, uh, I don't know, print endless credit uh, <laughs> to, to keep people, uh, you know, keep people going uh, while they weren't working. That's definitely coming, coming back to haunt us uh, in the economic realm. And I think that we're going to be uh, seeing dividends from, from COVID policies for decades to come, honestly. So yeah, I'm hoping that, uh, I'm hoping that the bad times are here economically because I do think that would get uh, people's attention. Uh, <clears throat> but it's less the agitation that an economic catastrophe will produce amongst the populace and more the instability of an economic crisis amongst the establishment that I, I think we need to focus on. That's what we need to hope for. Uh, it destabilizes these, the power structure, uh, and they, they really can't handle too many crises at the same time. So they're, they're, they're lucky. Uh, they're lucky to only get one crisis at a time. America had three crises in, in uh, 2020. We had COVID, we had BLM, and we had a stolen election. And all of those are having effects rippling into the present day uh, that are very, very important. So there, these are, every crisis for the system is an opportunity for us. Yep, I would agree with that a million percent. People say, you know, you have to go with where the public mood is. And it, like for the last few months, it's definitely been around this, this plantation or this invasion as we call it, because you know, that's the, the fresh issue. And, and some of the COVID issues, people were, as you can imagine, if, if they were psyoped into partaking in the medicine and all that kind of stuff, it can be, it's a thorny issue. But um, it still has to be, look, the darkness, the light has to be shown on the darkness. Uh, the Matt Hancock uh, release from his WhatsApp last week, week before, that's after, you know, resonating across the UK, people are pissed off. Like, it's going to reach, I think, like you said there, to keep it on the popular side of it, it has to reach a point where, where this regime, and I mean that for on, a, on the Western scale, is going to fall, fold in on itself. I wanted to ask you about um, what's going on in Ukraine, because to me, the more I look at it, it just looks like a load of white people killing each other. Uh, what's your thoughts on what's going on there? 
Well, I am a supporter of the Ukrainians. That's my uh, uh, my side in the fight. Uh, I, I'm on the side of the Ukrainians because Ukraine is the homeland of the Ukrainian people. And uh, it's the only homeland they've got. And they're being invaded by a country that denies the very existence of the Ukrainian people and basically wants to wipe their language and culture off the face of the earth. Uh, I think it's a pretty clear-cut case of good versus evil here. Uh, and I, I think, yes, uh, we, we shouldn't be fooled by the fact that there's this Zelensky character or that uh, Western libtards are really excited about the Ukrainian position. Uh, the, the essential position on this for me is that this is a, a battle between uh, a nation that is the homeland of its people and an imperial power that seeks to deny their uh, their national self-determination. Uh, I look at the Ukrainians as a, as a colonized people who want to decolonize their homeland of, of the remnants of Russian imperialism. So I'm 100% sympathetic for uh, with the Ukrainians on ethno-nationalist grounds. I would like the war to be over. Uh, because I do think it's uh, very sad that you have two nations, uh, Ukraine being overwhelmingly white and Russia certainly uh, having a white majority, uh, both of which have catastrophically low fertility, uh, killing one another, uh, and, and, and where you have uh, some of the best people, some of the most patriotic and idealistic people in Ukraine, uh, rushing out to defend their homeland and dying, uh, wars have terrible dysgenic effects. So I would like there to be as quickly as possible some kind of solution to this, some kind of settled solution. I don't think there will be a settled solution until the Ukrainians have inflicted enough losses on the Russians uh, to actually get them to uh, engage in good faith negotiations and, and bring this uh, bloodletting to a halt. So that, that, that's my brief take on the, on the Ukraine uh, struggle. Well, no, that well, that'd be pretty controversial. Well, I suppose here, I, look, I suppose I'll, I'll lay it out. Just my, my I, I kind of sympathise with Russia in the sense of, um, you know, the like the 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 the, the revolution in Ukraine potentially could have been backed by CIA, um, when they had a pro-Russian kind of leader there, and I kind of empathise with Russia because it's on their border. They are an old imperialistic power, um. But at the same time, I don't know that there's a puppet strings there. And just what you touched on in the end there, I, I empathize hugely with Ukraine in the sense that all those nationalist dudes, all the good guys there that actually are based and have their heads screwed on, I, I think they're being used as cannon fodder. And I think both sides actually, who benefits? Well, I don't know who benefits, but say we know Zelensky's ethnicity. We know what well, he's a Jew. Um at the same time as that, it suits it suits the Western powers to get rid of those nationalists. So even on just on the basic level, you've got these guys that they're they're well clued in, um, they could potentially be a threat to the Ukrainian state. And then Russia at the other side don't like them either. And it seems that they are, like you said, they're the ones rushing in and it's carnage. So I like yeah, as a, I, I'm Irish, I try to stay neutral. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that's uh, that's the Irish position. It should be our position, and, and that's under threat as well. That's another thing we didn't get to talk about. But um, yeah, so 
yeah, it's 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 a tough one. What's going on over there? Mm-hmm. Well, I, we will leave it at that. On the, or have you a few minutes to take some questions from the listeners, or how are you fixed for time? Oh, I'd love to take some questions. Yeah, fire away. Good stuff. Brilliant. Um, Dave the Pond is there. Do you want to come in, Dave? Yeah. Hi. Good evening, Greg. Um, thanks for letting me ask a question. Greg, I've been watching the Ukraine and looking at its history and in terms of the that whole region being part of this cyclical um, place of violence. I think that the um, the way that this um, situation there, which began brewing in the early 2000s, is designed to do nothing more than two things. One, destroy the Ukrainian people who were really part of Russia and the Russian speaking people of the Ukraine to utterly destroy the landscape, to impinge on the stability of food supplies in a vast area because it's a very productive region and allow the so-called World Economic Forum that I see having a very different pedigree to um, introduce as they build back better. Um, the new paradigm that they're seeking to impose upon us all. So whilst I appreciate the, uh, the, the Ukrainian people have been sold the idea that they're working in their own sovereign interests, the fruit of it will be that they are being destroyed. And the front line on this is, is showing that. And that the West should not, I mean, it's, it is NATO that's been slowly encroaching upon the, uh, on Russia having freed itself from the shekel of uh, Bolshevik communism, thanks to just very small individuals, the hope that you express. You know, people like Solzhenitsyn, or even the guy who stood in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square. So I think we have to be very careful about um, assuming that this chessboard, this grand chessboard is one that is um, not being manipulated to a much deeper extent. I yield. Well, I know many ardent nationalists in Ukraine, and believe me, they are manipulating the West just as much as the West is trying to manipulate them. And this is the fate of every smaller country uh, faced with a larger adversary. They need to seek out uh, allies and friends. And they have gone about this in a very uh, ruthless and focused way. And they are certainly willing to, uh, they're certainly willing to pay a lot of money to Western politicians. Uh, they've bribed Western politicians. Uh, certainly, the, certainly the Biden family uh, is, is dirty with bribery from uh, the Ukrainians. I can't blame them for that. This is simply, uh, if, if I'm going to be a political realist, I have to, uh, uh, be somewhat tolerant of the fact that small nations will seek out uh, allies amongst larger nations uh, in any way they can. So I, I think it's just wrong to paint uh, this in a in too one-sided a way that uh, the West is or the globalists are simply manipulating these people. I think these people are manipulating uh, outside forces as well. And they're doing it because uh, they want to maintain the independence of their country, because it's their only homeland. 
And they also want to decolonize their country because they feel like uh, their country has been colonized uh, both ethnically and culturally, linguistically by Russia because they've been uh, controlled by Russia for large spans of their history. Uh, this, the, the reason why so many Ukrainians, uh, ethnic Ukrainians speak Russian as a first language is because in the 19th century, uh, the, the Russian czars had uh, a program of uh, Russification and uh, they want to roll this, this back. I, I completely sympathize with that. I completely sympathize with any, uh, any people that's been colonized to the point where uh, their own native language uh, is uh, threatened with, uh, with the erasure. That's a, that's a great point. Um, that, that's a really good point, Greg, especially here in the Irish situation, because a lot of us would be pissed off with Ukrainians because our countries took in 100,000 of them. And we've got all the stories there that some of them are just taking the absolute piss, you know what I mean? They're, they've flown home and they're still collecting money. They're, um, some of them are come driving around in Porsche, you know, Porsche Jeeps, and they're living in hotels on the taxpayer dime. But at the same time, you know, women and children, none of us would reject women and children if they were genuine. And the government has used the Ukrainian thing as a smokescreen. And when it's been fact-checked by some of our guys, it turns out, you know, the Ukrainian is, is from India and he's, and he's in his 50s and it's all nonsense. But um, I, <laughs> that's, when, that's, that's yeah. utterly shameful. I, I've been following some of this stuff on social media uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty shocking. You know, it's, it's to the Ukrainians, Greg, as well. Do you know what I mean? Because the genuine Ukrainians then are taking the flack of the government being so sly and underhanded. And um, I wanted to just, while it's in my mind, because when you were speaking there as well, it came into my head, and this is something that I've been thinking about myself. You're asking us, like, what we're going to do. We're starting from the bottom, right? Well, we, we need, we desperately need, like, in, the, in America or somewhere else, they've got, they've got these philanthropists that are help, they're helpful with their cause, or they've got people who know they have tech, technical skills that, like, we're literally starting as, as um, citizens, as, you know, grassroots, people and I was thinking like how could we or have you any suggestions how maybe we could reach out to the US like to get support say with the Irish diaspora or the, the, the Irish Americans how could we reach them for even funding like we need our, our, we know alternative news we need alternative media and we need it's not even about money because I put all my time in here and I don't get paid do you know what I mean it's, it's, it's not about like getting paid for our time it's about the technical ability and you know what I mean, the know-how or and funding or do you know what I mean to get fucking things done, and it's really yeah. tough. Like, well, I do know that the IRA got its start in the United States, right, in the uh, Irish diaspora there. So I do think it's uh, very worthwhile uh, for Irish dissidents today to uh, look to the diaspora communities for for aid and sympathy. However. Uh, I, I wonder just how uh, productive that would be. Uh, the, the people I know in the United States who are Irish-American today, uh, they might have an Irish surname, but uh, there might be a quarter Irish uh, by descent, and they are just as at home uh, celebrating Oktoberfest as St. Patrick's Day or, or and, and, and 
far more important than anything Irish is Super Bowl Sunday for these people. Americans uh, are very deracinated and distracted. And uh, uh, I think that uh, they, they don't really uh, resonate like they, they did in the past. Irish Americans today don't resonate like they did in the past with the Irish struggle for freedom. Uh, just because over time, uh, they've lost a lot of their identity. Uh, and I, I think that's probably true with the, uh, diaspora communities uh, around the world uh, in, in, say, New Zealand or Australia, places like that. So that is one factor you have to contend with. My, my sense is that you're more likely to find genuine Irish nationalism in Ireland uh, than you are to find uh, sympathy uh, with Irish nationalism uh, abroad, sad to say. But I, it's worth trying. Uh, it's definitely worth trying. But I think it's going to be yourselves alone uh, to to get this thing going. And uh, but I think you can succeed. Yeah, no, hundred percent. It's just trying to get the, like the people on board. As I said, like if you've seen any other campaigns, especially say during the pandemics and stuff like that, you've seen all the churches went with the narrative. Like we had big. Um, what would you call them, referendums here, say, over abortion, over gay marriage, over different things. And you could see there was professionalism, there was a spend going into social media campaigns on both sides, for and against. You can see, you know, things are getting done by professionals. And then the pandemic came along and we're all just thrown to the wolves. And that kind of transfers then into the nationalism on what we're trying to do now. Because basically, like, like the old country here is under attack again. And now, but at the same time, over in the US, you've got your own problems now, like <laughs> as we all do. So it's, you know, but um, that's all I just want to say. I see Fionn there has his hand up. Um, you can respond there if you want, Countercurrents. Just going to let Fionn in next. Good there, Fionn. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, I had a question, but you've moved on from the topic, so don't worry about it. All good, all good. So look, um, Greg, it was brilliant, and um, you're a wealth of knowledge, and I'd hope you come on again. Patricia's there. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Love to have you back. Love to have you back, because it's been a great conversation. And I had had loads of questions that we didn't even get to touch on. Um, Patricia, are you there? Just see if we can get Patricia. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Greg. My reception is absolutely cat. Um, Greg, it was a pleasure having you on tonight. And look, we'll get you on again. I'll send you a message a bit later, okay? And thanks a million for coming on. Okay, thank you so much. And yes, let's do this again. And uh, I'd like to have you on my live streams as well, uh, just to, uh, you know, I've got a pretty big audience, uh, surprising, surprisingly big sometimes. So I'd like more people to know about what you're doing. Uh, Pox Populi did a, a very good stream for us about the uh, situation there that I, I think was very informative to a lot of my, my listeners. And I, uh, you know, this is, the, this is one struggle as far as I'm concerned. And I support the the ethnic self-determination of all peoples on the world, uh, on the planet. And I am especially concerned with the ethnic self-determination of my greater racial family, uh, white people. 
And uh, I've got a soft spot for, for the Irish people because, well, you fought uh, a very long time for your independence and it just seems tragic to me that it's being undone so quickly. It is tragic. Greg, do you want to um, just point people to your socials and to where they can find your stuff? Because I was on your website and it was really good and I shared one of your articles. But just to give yourself a plug. Yeah, well, it's countercurrents.com. That's counter-currents. There's a dash between the two words, counter-currents.com. We are a webzine. We have uh, live streams uh, on the weekends, uh, one a week. We do um, about 20 pieces a week uh, of material, mostly uh, mostly original material. Sometimes we'll reprint something if it's very important. And we are uh, going uh, strong. We're approaching our 13th birthday uh, and we have a pretty large audience. So we've also published uh, some 80 books, uh, print books over the years. And that's the primary place to find me. I have a Telegram channel. I'm on Gab. I've never been able to stay very long on, well, I, I was on Twitter for some years, but when I started actually using the platform, I got bounced off of it fairly rapidly. So I'm not around Twitter, uh, but definitely uh, look us up on Telegram, look us up on Gab, or just go to the source, go to counter-currents.com. Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. And you'll come back again and um, we'll, we'll figure something out there, like you're saying about the, the live streams and stuff. Thanks a million. I'm just going to end the recording now and um delighted to have you and it was brilliant. Thank you so much. Good night.